0: morning church i got a uh i got a new bookmark this morning lindsey drew me a teddy bear so isn't it great can you even see it i just i don't know if you care but i just thought i'd let you know uh our scripture reading for today is from acts chapter 13 verse 14 through 52 it's a little longer but it's all right god's word is always good acts chapter 13 verse 14 through 52 and this is the word of the lord but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. In this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what what was spoken by Paul reveling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke up boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. I'd like to welcome Jay and Grace, who are with us for the first time. Uh, Jay and Grace, where are you sitting? Over there. Welcome. Uh, Let's give them a warm Cornerstone welcome. Glad to have you this morning, and we also have a friend of Jacob Lee. Uh, Jane is with us today. Jane, where are you sitting? Jane is over there. Let's also give Jane a warm welcome. What was that about? <laughs> Something I don't know. All right. Um, all right. Uh, a couple of years ago, Barna, which is a research group, released a report with these findings. Okay, I, I hope uh, you're not offended by these findings, okay? Christian millennials feel especially conflicted about evangelism. And in fact, almost half of these Christian millennials believe it is wrong to share their faith. Let me continue on with the report. Interestingly enough, the millennials feel most equipped to share their faith compared to Gen Xers and boomers' generations. So they're very confident that they can share their faith. They believe that they're gifted at sharing their faith. Um, but despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half, right, 47%, agree that at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Gen Xers, they're at 27%. Boomers, they're at 19% as opposed to 47% of millennials believing this, right? And it says also that though Generation Z, or teenagers, were not included in this study, their thoroughly post-Christian posture will likely amplify this stance toward evangelism. It's a very negative stance, right? Not a good trend we're seeing here. David Kinnaman, president of Barna Group, says that this study highlights a need for Christians to bolster their confidence in certain convictions, among them the belief that Evangelizing others is actually a good and worthy investment. Cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction, Kinnaman concludes, is difficult in a world of you-do-you, or don't criticize anyone's life choices, or emotivism, the feelings-first priority that our culture makes a way of life. So there are definitely obstacles, but trend is not good at all. Is this, brothers and sisters, how some of you think as well? Or Do you believe that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith? If that's what you believe, uh, I want to challenge you this morning. Can you really claim to be a Christian? If there's any of you who really believe that the gospel should not be shared with others by the grace of God, I am hoping to persuade you this morning to think otherwise, because it is not right to think that way. You are, at best, a confused believer, and at worst, you may not be a believer at all. Today, I've organized a message around three questions. Question number one. What does it mean to proclaim Christ, and why is there division even over this basic idea among Christians in our day? Question number two, when is it appropriate to shake the dust from our feet and move on, as we see happening here in our passage today? And question number three, how is it possible to respond to persecution with joy And being filled with the Holy Spirit, as we also see in in our passage this morning. So question number one. And I'm going to spend the most time on this, so question two and three will be rather quick. Number one, what does it mean to proclaim Christ? And why is there division even over this basic idea among Christians? Well, one reason why there's division is because there's disagreement on even the most basic question of who Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ and, and how are we to present this Christ to others? You know, is he truly the only way to be reconciled to a holy God or is he just one of many ways we can find peace with God? There's disagreement even on that most basic question. Another reason why there's division even over this basic idea is because Christians are divided over how they think the church should be perceived in this world or by this world. You know, you sometimes hear, you know, you conservatives, if, if you keep on calling out sin, right, if you keep on, on blasting the world and, and calling the, the world to repent of their sins, don't you realize that we will be perceived as judgmental and mean-spirited. Can't you see? It makes our evangelize, evangelizing more difficult, don't you realize? That's one of the claims. So there is a real divide between what I would call the truth and orthodoxy camp versus the empathy and respectability camp, right? The two camps are in tension, and I realize, you know, I... I I'm aware that it's not just—it's not a really black and white thing. There's a a spectrum, and and so there are a variety of uh, viewpoints on that spectrum. But the older generation, in general, okay, in general, they tend to lean toward making sure that the church does take a clear and public stand on the great moral issues of our day, even if it means turning people off in the process. And the younger generation, in general, tends to lean toward wanting to earn the trust and respect of the unbelieving world, but that usually means avoiding direct confrontation and speaking less clearly on these matters. You know, one of the common expressions that these younger Christians like to use is, we must speak winsomely into the culture, you know, winsomely, whatever that means, Usually that means vaguely, right, non-confrontationally. My position is this: we obviously do not want to needlessly turn people off by de- deliberately being rude and obnoxious, like the Dunkin' Donuts employees every morning. A- Andrew always he picks up Dunkin' Donuts on Sunday mornings, and he's always like grumpy walking in. And they were so mean to me today, you know. I mean, bad service is one thing, but once it becomes snappy, I said, Andrew, that's the time you'd shake the dust off your feet and you find another place to go. <laughs> we, we, we ought not to needlessly turn people off by being mean-spirited, but Making a clear public stand on the great moral issues of our day and speaking clearly on matters that Scripture itself is clear about should never be compromised, no matter how the world chooses to react. Is that such a controversial position? If you're not fully convinced, let me try to further work on your heart this morning. Let me try to further persuades you through, through God's Word, okay? So let's turn to God's Word. In our passage today, our author Luke records the sermon that Paul gave in the mountainous region of Antioch-Pisidian. It's Paul's first recorded sermon. And just like Stephen and Peter who preached before him, the Apostle Paul, unsurprisingly, is, is very clear In what he says, and he is not afraid to offend his listeners. To what was primarily a Jewish audience at first, he speaks very clearly of Jesus' death and resurrection, and he boldly proclaims Jesus to essentially be the long awaited Messiah who came to fulfill all of God's promises throughout the Old Testament. And this did not sit well with many of the people in the Jewish establishment because to proclaim Jesus to be the Messiah was not just some personal spiritual statement that had no public or political implication. It was a highly charged political statement to say Jesus is the Messiah because it meant that Jesus was not only the Savior, but he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if that's true, it would have meant that the Jewish establishment would have had to give up their power and they would have to start submitting to the true king, Jesus, from that point on. It would have flipped their world upside down. This was a clear case, brothers and sisters, of sharing one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will also one day share the same faith. That's what evangelism is. We see Paul later sharing this gospel to the Gentiles as well, not just in this passage, but if you work through Acts, I mean, he, he mainly focuses on the, the Gentile. That's why he's known to be the apostles, apostle for the Gentiles. But when he's speaking of the Gentiles, you know, Paul, he didn't reference the Old Testament like he does here, but his basic message did not change. It was the same. Jesus is Savior, and he is also Lord, not just over me, but also over you and you and you, no matter what you believe, no matter what your religion is. Please do not overlook this fact. Many of the apostles were martyred under Rome, not simply because they worshipped Jesus. Remember that Rome was a very pluralistic and polytheistic society, so they did not care at all what you worshipped. The apostles were martyred because they preached a Christ who was greater than Caesar and greater than the glory of Rome. So when when Paul went around declaring that Jesus is Lord, that's what he meant, and that's how it was understood. That's why Jesus was a threat to the state. Brothers and sisters, too many of us live with a truncated view of the gospel. We live as though Jesus simply came to save me so that I could enjoy some personal intimacy with God, and I'm not saying that that's not true, you should enjoy personal intimacy with God, but that cannot be the extent of your view of the Christian faith. Your your faith is not meant to be a privatized faith that just simply serves you. When the Bible says that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, it means that Jesus' words have authority over every person, over every tribe, every nation, every tongue, The Old Testament prophets, let me remind you, they repeatedly called upon pagan nations and kings to repent before God, even though these pagan nations worshipped other gods already. They already had their own personal beliefs. Jonah, as you know, preached to a pagan people who were living in a Gentile city called Nineveh, They already had their own religion. We talked about who Herod Antipas was a few times, right? He's the one who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. But do you remember why John's head got lopped off? It's because John the Baptist did what he was not supposed to do. He called out Herod for his sexual immorality, but didn't John know that Herod didn't really care anything about following God's law? Why would he demand that this wicked Herod submit himself to God's law? And yet he did. He called this king to repentance. Brothers, sisters, please do not live with a truncated view of the gospel. The gospel is a declaration that Jesus is both Savior Savior. And Lord, he is king over every nation. The gospel is not a message of how you can enjoy your little private powwow with Jesus. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and you make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Knowing that that's a scary thought for mere mortals, he concludes with, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So take heart, you go, you share this message with all nations. You know, one key tactic that Satan uses to silence Christians And to hinder the progress of God's kingdom is to deceive us into thinking that we are to keep our faith private. That's why every secular culture throughout all of history, including the Babylon of the Old Testament, including Rome of the New Testament, and including our own government in our current day, all of these governments They seek to pressure its citizens into privatizing their faith. Believe what you want in private, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But you cannot bring your religion into the public square. If you see that statue, you bow to it. I don't care what you do in private. When you come out in public, you bow down to the state. Same thing in Rome. I don't care what you do in private. When you come out in public, you bow down to Caesar. Caesar. You can believe whatever you want to believe, as long as what you believe does not contradict what the state believes. Several years ago, I had an interesting conversation with someone who was working in our government, and he was saying, Pastor, I could be personally against abortion, or homosexuality or gay marriage or transgenderism. But if my boss at work asks me to draft a workplace policy or do something that goes against my personal beliefs, I would have no problem doing it. You know why? Because I believe in separation of church and state. That was his reasoning. And I did my best to show him how flawed his logic was and how incoherent he was sounding. Basically saying, so you're saying that you would have been fine living under Hitler and uh, obeying his, his decrees, right? But I don't think he agreed with me in the end. And sadly to say, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you shared his views, since I hear it all the time. But I want to make it clear, if you do share these views, you too would have been very comfortable under Hitler. You too would have been very comfortable under Caesar of Rome. Because whatever Caesar requests from you, you would just do it. And then to ease your conscience, you would simply say, well, you know, separation of church and state. Brothers and sisters, do not be naive. Pluralistic societies like ours, they seek to assimilate you and essentially make you into its image by making you privatize your Christian faith. That's how it is in a secular society because if God is not king, then who else is king? Well, the state is king. So you must bow down to the state. And guess what? The state promises to take care of all of your needs. Is how that logic plays out. The reason why I believe that Satan is ultimately behind this tactic of privatizing our faith is because for whatever reason, it's only the Christian faith that gets repeatedly shunned from the public square while virtually all other faiths and religions tend to enjoy free reign. In other words, so it's okay to to shape public policy based on one's atheism because that's not a religion, right? Wrong. It's okay to shape public policy based on your own secular humanism or your radical feminism or your version of cultural Marxism or your twisted transgenderism. But oh no, 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 you cannot bring your Christian faith into the public square. We cannot have that because of separation of church and state, right? Can you not see what's going on? For those of you who believe that Christians should not be sharing their faith in public and shaping the world according to God's truth, you you really need to realize that there's no such thing as a neutral belief that is going to be able to accommodate everyone's belief systems in the most equitable way. There is no neutrality in that sense. If the gospel is not allowed to be proclaimed in the public square, and if the truth of God's word is not allowed to shape the culture we live in or shape the schools we seek to educate our children in, then some other wicked, secular ideology built upon a bunch of lies will. Now I ask you, do you think it's truly a loving act to allow an entire culture to be governed by lies, lies about race, lies about gender, lies about sexuality, lies about identity, lies about what justice actually is, lies about what the government should be doing, what role it should have in this world. By the way, I do believe, as most Christians do, that there should be a separation of church and state, but see, that concept was never meant to mean that Christians should not be allowed to speak the truth of God's Word in the public square and directly shape and influence public policy Jesus is Lord over all things. It means that he is Lord over all earthly governments as well. Question number two, when is it appropriate then to shake the dust off from your feet and move on? Verse 48 and on. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believe. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region because people were not privatizing their faith. They were, they were boldly declaring the gospel to others. And so the Jews, they got upset because they didn't want to lose their influence The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, so they made Paul and Barnabas' life miserable and drove them out of their district. They used force, they used tactics to drive them away. Get out of here. We don't want you here. You're messing up our lives. So verse verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and so, shaking off the dust from your feet and moving on, it, it basically meant, meant this, okay? It, it meant that, look, I, I have fulfilled my responsibility to clearly share the gospel with you. Right? As a messenger of the gospel, that, I've, I've fulfilled that responsibility. Now, the ball is on your court. So, if you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will live. But if you reject him, if you reject this message... And God's judgment will be upon you. Right? Take it or leave it. And If you're hostile toward me, if you're going to be hostile, if you're going to be snappy about it, right, then I'm going to shake off the dust from my feet and move on to the next town. In, in some real way, this actually gives me great comfort. Right? Because this makes it very clear to me that my responsibility as a messenger of the gospel is not to make sure that everyone I share the gospel with becomes a convert, you see. That is not, God did not put that on my plate, right? My responsibility is to do my very best to to share the gospel in a clear way so people understand what they're either accepting or rejecting. You know, like any pastor, I I do have serious concerns over people's spiritual well-being, But I'm not going to despair over the fact that certain people reject the gospel, even the church. You know, the thought thought that my own child or children may never truly know the Lord, it does break my heart, but I'm not going to raise my fist against God if things don't turn out my way. Because my responsibility is not to make sure that they become a Christian That's in God's hands, ultimately. My responsibility is to make clear the message of the gospel, not to dilute it by taking away anything from it or to confuse it by adding other requirements to it, whether I'm a pastor of a church or a father in a home. My responsibility is clear. Someone this past week asked me, Pastor, when would be the last straw before I moved on to a different state? (laughs) It's a similar question to mine, isn't it? You know, when would you shake off the dust from your feet and move move out of Virginia to a different state? Here was my answer. It was through email. Okay, I'll share a portion of my answer. Essentially, this is what I said. Moving to a less authoritarian state has always been an appealing idea. But a big part of being in ministry means you are to serve in places that are less appealing. Do right, you like that one? But I could—I I said more. I wrote more. But I suppose the last straw—the last straw would be when the government strips our rights to freely educate our children, or when the government pre- prevents prevents pastors. From speaking the truth. If that day ever comes, I can see myself calling people to relocate for their own sake and for the sake of their children. Okay. That was my basic answer. And it is scary, you know, because uh, I know people are out there and you see them all the time in the news and on social media, but it, it's a scary thought to think that some people, if they had the actual power to do so, that they would, they would prohibit all homeschooling and private education options. Right? This is becoming more of a popular, popular view. And I tell you, if any of you actually held to such a belief, I would rebuke you strongly because that is not just a political opinion. That is a belief in direct opposition to God's word which gives parents the primary responsibility and freedom to instruct their children. So when the government or anyone else tries to take away that basic right that God gives the parents, that basic freedom, then that's when you and I are allowed to say, no, you've gone too far. And you shake the dust off from your feet and you move on. Question three, how is it possible to respond to persecution with, with joy? Isn't that kind of odd? Verse 52, and the disciples, after shaking the dust off from their feet, they, they were filled with joy, it says, and... and Also, with the Holy Spirit. My question is this Why weren't they angry instead and frustrated by the lack of kindness or appreciation shown in this town? (laughs) And the short answer is that it's because the power of the gospel changed them. The power of the gospel changed their perspective on life. That's one answer, that's one kind of response. But let me also answer that question by showing you a picture. Okay, I. I normally don't show you slides, but I'm going to roll here, it's showing like at least one slide a week now. So, <laughs> you can dim the lights if you need to. Oh my goodness, what is that? Right? What is what picture is that? That is a picture of Antioch, Pisidian. Right? The mountainous region of Antioch, Pisidian. And it represents what? It represents the suffering, (laughs) the the labor, the the sacrifice of Paul and those who are traveling with him and reaching antioch Pisidian who preach the gospel. Remember, uh, for those of you who were with, with us last week, you know, from the island of Cyprus, Paul traveled to where? He traveled north to Perga, the city of Perga, which was in the region of Pamphylia. And we, we said it was a, the, uh, the lower coastlands. And there he likely caught something like malaria, okay? Severely ill, and he had to find a healthier place, uh, like the mountainous regions of Antioch-Pisidian, right? But look, from one of the views from the lower coastlands was this. You had to conquer that mountain. You had to <laughs> trek through the, that, that kind of terrain, right? That, that was no joke, especially back in those days. There weren't some like neat, you know, organized pathway. It was a rough trip. When Paul later writes about being in danger of robbers and, and toiling through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, right? And cold and exposure. I'm sure those mountain roads had something to do with that. I think about what, what that mountain represents in your life. You know, it, it's common, isn't it, for people to find their identity in things like this and to become angry and, and frustrated when others Don't recognize how much you've actually sacrificed for them. I've journeyed through mountains for you. (laughs) How dare you treat me like this? Is the human natural response, right? Christians are to be different because our identity is not in the mountains we conquer. We do not boast in our own accomplishments. We do not esteem ourselves based on what we have done in this life. When appropriate recognition is not given, we do not respond in anger or with a vengeful spirit. Rather, we shake the dust from our feet and we walk away rejoicing. How is that possible? Well, it's because, as you know, our identity is found in the Lord. And the foundation of our joy is not in how many people will recognize me, but in the knowledge that God's will is being done regardless of these hardships that I face in life. Isn't it true? When you do a good deed, a very good thing, when you, when you do a very good service for the church, aren't you tempted? To reveal how much you sacrifice for the Lord and for others. I confess I get tempted all the time. And I confess I'm guilty of boasting about it more than once. In my weakness, I have boasted in my accomplishments. In contrast, I know some of you who have quietly labored behind the scenes, to make this ministry possible over the years. And I'm so thankful for your humility. You are a better Christian than I am. (laughs) And I also say this. I wouldn't be surprised if there are several of you who served quietly, even without me knowing. And that's not easy to do. I noticed, you know, uh, during... Most of 2020 and 2021, our our basement kitchen was pretty filthy because we were having this like pretty uh, significant painting project being done downstairs. And so all the supplies were kind of scattered about and things were getting very messy and disorganized in the kitchen downstairs. But, you know, one day, this is after after, like for many weeks, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take care of it next week in my mind. I'll take care of it next week. I kept on delaying, delaying. And one day I come to church, I open the door, and wow, what, what just happened? Everything's so neat, and someone came and, and obviously cleaned it up. And I had a list of people on my mind who could have possibly done this. I, don't, I still don't know who it is, though, right? I, I don't know who it is. So whoever you are, God bless you. <laughs> you have a true servant's heart, And I respect that. Right after 9 o'clock service, I I look at the staff chat room and and our staff members are saying, oh, it was me, it was me. No, they're joking. It wasn't them. It wasn't them. See, these guys are not golly, right? (laughs) I'm just joking. How do people live in such a way? Well... It's because they don't seek the applause of man, right? They don't live to gain points from people around them. And that's an awesome thing. Right? They, they persevere in life as they fix their eyes upon the Lord. And they simply seek the applause of God. That's who they live for. And it makes their life very beautiful and humble. And that's how these early disciples did it as well. They were not concerned, brothers and sisters, about how the world perceived them. And neither should we. I know that it's not always comfortable to listen to my preaching, okay? Even today, you're probably not comfortable, some of you. But... Please, do not be so concerned about how unbelievers will think of you. Oh, you go to that church? (laughs) Do not be so concerned about how unbelievers will think of our church, especially in this day and age where people, without any exaggeration, have completely lost their minds on pretty much every issue. Understand the times we're living in. You know, all other peoples, all other communities and institutions who reject God, they essentially are building on the foundation of sand. And you know what that means? Eventually all of that will crumble. And it may not be that discernible now, But in the long run, the truth of God's word and the church, which is built upon the truth of God's word, will show itself to be much more beautiful and desirable in the lasting place than anything else you see in this world. So with that confidence, brothers and sisters, would you please boldly and freely proclaim Christ even if people happen to reject the message of our Lord. When they do, you just shake off the dust from your feet and you be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, knowing that the Lord is with you and he is pleased by your intention to honor him in this life, even in the midst of your hardships. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for being afraid and even embarrassed to share the truth of who Christ is and how salvation can be found in no other, and how there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and how there is condemnation and God's just wrath poured upon those who are outside of Christ forgive us for being ashamed by such a message. Father, in an effort to love people well, including our own enemies, many Christians have gone too far and have become lovers of this world. And as a result, the church has become worldly and virtually indistinguishable from the world it's been called to reach. Many Christians, including Christian leaders, have been unwilling to clearly articulate what your word says in regards to sexuality or gender or marriage or love or equality or justice. Instead, they have foolishly adopted the world's definition of each of these terms and have grossly misled your sheep. I ask that you would rebuke and discipline these leaders and protect us from such lies of the world so that we would persevere on the narrow path that leads to life. And Lord, restore the joy of our salvation and the love that we once had of the good news of Jesus Christ so that we may be eager to share the good news to those around us. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.